Good morning, good morning, Rabotai. Welcome to Breakfast in the Class. Uh, today, dedicated in loving memory and Lilui Nishmat Avraham and Zoleicha and Yechezkel Lava Shalom, sponsored by his son, Maurice Chosh, uh, MD. Uh, breakfast and the class, as well as dedicated in loving memory of Raymonde and David Sofer, Alehem Shalom Lilui Nishmatem. David Moshe Ben Naima, Alava Shalom, and Simha Bat Hana, Aleha Shalom, sponsored by their son, Edward Sofer. <clears throat> and finally, Breakfast in the Class is dedicated in loving memory of Sophie Shabbat, Aleha Shalom, and Isaac Marcos, Leilu Nishmatem, Simha Bat Sarah, Aleha Shalom, and Yitzhak Ben Sophia, sponsored by David Shabbat. Rabutai, our parasha begins with words, Ve'ela mishpatim asher tasim these are the laws that you shall place before them. Now that word, tasim, place, is a very interesting word. We find it actually in the prayers in the Amidah where we say, Sim Shalom Toba Ubracha, where we ask HaKadosh Baruch Hu to place peace. And our rabbis tell us that the word Sim Shalom, to place peace, means that peace cannot be imposed. It can't be enforced. It can't be forced upon somebody. Because if peace is about the way you and I relate to one another, so even if you try and make me feel a certain way about you, it doesn't actually hold, it doesn't take root unless I feel that way already, unless I want to feel that way. So there's a gentle placement of shalom where you basically put it in front of the people, you place it as a suggestion and hopefully that suggestion, the idea, takes root in the person's mind and in the person's heart and then eventually they change. You know, in uh, the Middle East, a lot of the peace brokers don't understand this concept. They think that the way you broke a peace is by forcing a solution upon the people, but you can't force a solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. It just doesn't work. And the reason is because there are real partners, there are real players here, not always that there are partners on both sides, but there are real players here with different needs and with different agendas, and they need to feel that this is something that I want to do, that I need to do, that is valuable for me to do, and that happens not when you force them to do something by economic sanctions or by political conundrums, but by actually placing an idea in front of them. As a rabbi, a lot of times you realize that when a couple comes to speak about an issue with Shalom Bayit, you can't tell them you have to do this, you must do this, you have to act this way, you have to say this, you have to feel that. You can't regulate a person's feelings or emotions. And especially when someone feels like they've been hard done by by their partner, telling them to feel a certain way doesn't actually solve the problem at all. But sometimes uh, a rabbi can suggest, you know, have you considered thinking about it this way? Or perhaps a better way to deal with the conflict that you're having is not by a all or nothing solution like you're presenting, but rather, you know, what if you did this on, uh, you know, one day in the week and you did this another day in the week? And if you place that solution gently on the table, sometimes a person will say, you know what, I, you know, I guess I could try that, the, my favorite line. I guess, you know, I guess it's worth a try, you know, maybe I'll... And when the person picks up the suggestion themselves, then there's a chance of having peace in a person's home. Rabotai, what's fascinating is that that word sim shalom would seem to have no rightful place in our parasha. Because when it comes to law, law is enforceable. 
ואלה המשפטים לי זה דלא זה אשר תשים לפניהם את שצאי אשר, not תשים, not that you place before them, but that you demand of them. In fact, just last week's parasha, we instituted an entire judicial system, a court system, a legal system, with judges of a hundred, of fifty, of even ten. Uh, the count of how many judges and how many people were placed in these management positions in order to guide the people towards, uh, you know, uh, towards judi- judicial reconciliation is over 78,000 judges. So there's an entire system here. It's one judge and or shoter policeman per each 10 Jewish, Jewish people. I mean, they were heavily policed. It wasn't defund the police. It was the opposite. Rabotai... If that's the case, then why are we using this word, asher tasim lifnehem, this justice, why is it being placed softly? And I think the answer can be understood through uh, an interesting anecdote from the life of the Sho'el Umeshiv. One of the great responses written in the halachic uh, uh, library is the book of the Sho'el Umeshiv, which means the ask or the, the question and the response. And in this response that was written by Rav uh, Shaul Nathanson, uh, it, it uh, discusses uh, issues, halachic issues that run the gamut of the Jewish uh, living experience. When he was a, uh, a rabbi, he was appointed to a very prestigious position in a famous city called Lvov. The rabbi arrives in the city of Lvov before the holidays. He's uh, installed as the rabbi. It's a very, it's an earth-shaking move for a, a rabbi to get this position. And he comes to the city and he hears a court case. It's one of his very first court cases as the new rabbi of the town. What happens? He's approached by some people who say to him, Rabbi, there's a, a person in this city. He was seen eating chametz on Passover. You have to do something. You have to excommunicate him. You can't let him uh, be counted as a for a minyan. You know, the guy is eating chametz on Pesach. How strict are we on Passover to make sure that we're eating only things that are kosher for Passover? And especially back then when they were much more traditional, they said, you got to chase this guy out. The rabbi calls in the, the uh, defendant and he says to him, is this true? People say they saw you and your family eating chametz on Passover. And the man says to the rabbi, I can't lie to you. He says, it's true. We were eating chametz. The rabbi says, why? Why were you eating chametz? Don't you know how serious of a violation that is? Why? Tell me. Why? Why did you do that? And the man says, rabbi, I'm going to be completely honest with you. He says, my family and I have nothing to eat. We are starving. We had no money for the holiday. We had no matzah in the house. We had no kosher for Passover food. And then I remembered that we have locked away some little bit of chametz that we sold before the holiday. So I opened it up and I ate the chametz, me and my family. The rabbi looks at this man. We all know the law that when it comes to pikuach nefesh, someone is literally starving to death. You know, every mitzvah in the Torah in front of pikuach nefesh is nullified. Except for three, idolatry, adultery, and murder. If it's not one of those three, the halacha is, you know, if someone's going to die, the pasuk says, v'chai bahem, you should live through these statutes, v'lo yamut bahem, and not to die from the mitzvah, or die from the refraining of the sin. So if, unless it's one of those three, it's pikuach nefesh, a person is allowed to, uh, to, to, break, the, uh, to break the mitzvah. 
So he thinks to himself, the rabbi says to himself, and he communicates this later to his students, to his family. He says, that's it, khalas. I'm no longer going to be the rabbi of this city. I'm leaving. They're all going crazy. Why? You just got here, such an important city, such a, a prestigious job. How could you turn down this opportunity? Don't you know what it will do for you, for your children, for your writings? The rabbi says, I can't be the rabbi of a city like this. Why? He said, if in this city, there's a court case between the people of the city, the people versus the chametz eater. They're calling him to court because he ate chametz. But no one bothered to give him enough money. Ma'ot chitin, there's a mitzvah that we uh, all as a community take on to make sure that the poorest people of the city have enough money for matzot, for the seder, for the four cups of wine. So not only did they not give him what he needed to have the food for the seder, but they brought proceedings against him in court because he ate chametz when his family, his wife and children were starving. I don't want no, nothing to do with a city like this. I'm out of here. After the holiday, I'm done. I'm gone. Could you believe? Unbelievable. Abutai, a few days later, another court case comes to the Sho'elu Meshiv, to Rav Nathanson. And it's a man who comes in and he says, Rabbi, uh, I have a claim against this man. This man, you got to make him do what's right. The rabbi's thinking in a city like this where they starve poor people, you know, what could the guy have done wrong already? It must be terrible. The crime is probably the most heinous crime you could imagine. And the man says, a few days ago, I came to the marketplace to buy all the things that I would need for the, for the coming year in business, to buy product in the marketplace. You know, at the time, they didn't have credit cards. They didn't have, uh, you couldn't tap with your phone. So all the money that he had was uh, cash, Bills in a, in, a, in, a, in a wallet, a satchel. I came to the place, I'm choosing materials until finally I find, you know, what's going to make me and my family enough income to be able to eat. I go to pay and I look through my things and my satchel is gone. The guy realizes that all his family's future, everything that he needs to be able to survive the cold winter is gone. On the spot he faints, he loses consciousness. They try and wake him up. As soon as he wakes up, he's screaming, my wallet, my money, my family. Again, faints. Again, they wake him up. Again, the same scene repeating itself a few times, like over and over and over. Until finally the guy wakes up and before he can faint again, the guy says, don't faint, I found the wallet. I think I have your wallet, don't, everything's okay. The guy says, you, you found my wallet. He says, tell me, he goes, before I return it to you, the law says, the halakha is, you need to give me simanim. What number bills were in the wallet? The guy says, well, there was this many hundreds and this many fifties and this many gulden and this many ruble and this many zlati. I don't know, whatever it was, right? But he gives him a detailed breakdown of all the denominations of the bills and of the money that was found in the satchel. The man says, give me a little while. I have to go back home and count it and I'll come back. Anyway, the guy is finally breathing a little bit, but he's nervous. Maybe it's not the right one. It is the right one, but at least now he has hope. He goes all the way, the man goes home, he comes back, he says, I can't believe it. He says, Baruch Hashem, I'm so excited. The wallet I found was actually yours. The denominations you had in there were exact. Baruch Hashem, you remembered what you had because otherwise I wouldn't have been able to return it to you. He gives the guy the, the, the money, 
Uh, he looked, the guy counts all the money. It's exactly all the denominations that he said. Baruch Hashem, Hashem, he says to him, he says, where's the bag, where's the wallet? And the man says, look, when you dropped it, it must have been run over by some uh, horses or whatever. The bag got ruined. So I threw the bag out, but I saved all the money. The guy says, thank you so much. I appreciate it. You don't know. Anyway, the rabbi is sitting there. He's thinking to himself, I don't know, people don't quite realize this, but sometimes you're sitting there telling you, the rabbi, yeah, rabbi, I have to ask you a question. But then they don't get to the question. They only tell you a story. <laughs> I need to ask you something, rabbi, you know. You t- they tell you a story and they say, could you believe that? You know. <laughs> but the rabbi is sitting there, he's, you know, okay. He goes, you know, you know, what's the question? The man says, the only problem with the story, he says, is that I found my wallet with all the money in it. Which means that the money that this guy returned down to the last uh, Zlati was not mine. It was his. He was a Sadiq. He saw how uh, affected I was and I was fainting repeatedly. And he thought to himself, this guy is not going to be able to survive this, uh, this story, this occurrence. And he went out and he actually had to change his own money. That's what took him so long. He changed his money to match all the exact specific bills that I, that I had in the bag. So I wouldn't know the difference. He says, but now I found the money. I don't need his gift. Like the Pasuk says, someone who hates gifts, he lives a very long life. So I don't want the gifts from him. I want to give it back. But the guy, he refuses to take his money back. He doesn't want to give up the mitzvah that he had of literally saving my life. Rabbi, he says, could you, understand, could you please tell him to do the right thing and let me give him his money back? The other guy says, Rabbi, look, I did the mitzvah. The guy took the money. I had to, once he took the money, it's out of my... I don't want it back. What, you can't force me to take money. The rabbi smiles. He turns to his family members and his students. He says, you know, cancel the tickets. If this is the court case that's going on in Lvov, I guess I could stay here. It's not only, you know, like, like what happened last week. So he says to this man, he says, I hear what you're saying, beautiful. And I hear what you're saying, beautiful. He says, I can't, you know, make you give the money. I can't make you keep the money, he says, but I have a great idea. You don't want it and you don't want it. There's a poor man who ha- eats chametz on Passover that I think would really be thrilled to be able to have this money. Why don't we give it to him? And they did. Magnificent. Rabutai. A tremendous amount can be learned about a society from the court cases it has. You know, Jackie Mason used to say, um, you know, <laughs> how does every Jew wake up in the morning? I mean, when he wakes up in the morning, he says to himself, who can I sue today? <laughs> Remember, that's Jackie Mason. You know, some people, that's how they wake up. They're looking to sue this guy. That's what they're trying to do. Some people are trying to do whatever they can to make a buck to mess over the next guy to be able to succeed in their own Paranasa. Good, that's how some people are. But when you see a court case like this, where they're fighting, each one doesn't want the money. This one wants to give it up because of Sonem Matanot This one doesn't want to take the money because of the misvah that he has is priceless. And he doesn't want, he doesn't want to lose it for any money in the world. That's a magnificent court case to be able to have. But to change people, that some people are sitting there bringing court cases against a starving man and his family. And some people are having court cases like this, right? How do you change people like that? That's something, Rabbi Otay, that you cannot impose. You know, the Jewish people, when they left 
the land of Egypt. They were slaves. Their primary uh, concern in Egypt was survival. That's what they were worried most about, Rabotai. And a people like that, they're rough, they're raw. They need to be slowly brought down the road to refinement. That doesn't happen in a day. And that doesn't happen by forcing someone to change. Because when you force a change on someone, then they change in front of you. When you force it with judges and with lawyers and with uh, policemen, you know what happens? The people spend all their time trying to figure out legal loopholes. You know? Oh, you're going to tax me like that? I'm going to put it in my wife's name. You can, uh, my wife is a, is a joint filing as a spouse. I'll put it in my kid's name. But I'm the trustee. I'm the executor of the da -da 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 account. So therefore, I could decide that my child, who's now three, wants to spend his money on a vacation to the Bahamas. Right? You understand? If you force people to do something without getting their buy-in, all they'll do is figure out ways to be able to get around the system that you set up. So says the Pasuk, we set up the judges. These are the laws you put in front of them. Rabotai, this is not about gross, rough concepts in this parasha. Here is where we're asking of you very refined court cases. What's the first mitzvah? The idea of taking a thief into your home and rehabilitating him. A beautiful thing that someone should want to do that for somebody else. And a few more pesukim we read about the Amah Ivriah, the female uh, Jewish uh, maid servant. How did this happen? You had a family that was destitute; they had no money; they could not take care of their daughter. So the guy went and he sells, so to speak, his daughter. He's not really selling his daughter; he's really creating a match with his daughter, as will be seen in a second. This girl, less than 12 years old, is sold to this other family. And what's the point of this? That they should raise her, they should feed her, they should take care of her. And ultimately, as the Pasuk says, that man's son should marry the girl. And then says the Pasuk, and if he doesn't want to marry the girl, then he has to let her free. You can't sell her. It's not, she's not property here. The whole point was that this guy is trying to find a better future for his child. But Rabotai... Which landowner, which wealthy man buys a, a, a penniless bride, so to speak, for his, for his son? That's your father-in-law? That's what you want for your father-in-law? You see? But the point is, Rabotai, that what we were communicating here is this idea, it's a refined idea, that maybe even if you're wealthy, it doesn't mean that you only have to marry a girl with the right last name. Maybe if she's a special person of her own volition, if she has great character traits, if she's a wonderful, has wonderful midot, and she's Yareh Shamaim, and she's gonna be a good mother, and a good wife, and a good companion, and a good best friend, then maybe it doesn't matter so much what her last name is or who her father was. Do you understand? That's a refined thing. We're asking of you to recognize that when you damage someone, never mind uh, uh, the damages that you incur when you hit someone in the face. The Torah says you have to pay nezek, you have to pay damage, tsar. Besides for the damage, there's pain that the guy incurs that without you he didn't need to. You're gonna pay for the pain besides for the damage. Ripu, you pay for his medical bills. Shevet, you pay for his unemployment because he can't work while he's in pain. 
And then says the Torah, you're also paying for the embarrassment that you caused. Now today, in our legal society, you have a lot of these ideas. But these ideas, they were gifted to the world by the, by the Bible, by the Torah. We taught the world this concept that there was emotional distress and that you could, that you could sue someone for that because they did that damage for you. The Torah says that if you left something, you know how often you're in the airport, you're packing your bag, you're repacking your bag because Jews don't know what this idea is, 50 pounds in a bag. We have not yet understood that concept. You all the time see in the, in the airports, Jewish families with their suitcases open, transferring from here to here, putting from here to there, taking the suitcase, put it in the carry-on, put the carry-on in the thing, eating the food that they were going to bring to the other country because now they don't have to wait, but they don't want to waste it. It's unbelievable, right? Rabotai, and then you left a suitcase there and someone trips on it. The Torah says, never mind that you have to worry about yourself. You need to worry about your property. You need to worry about a bore. You need to worry about... It's amazing. All of the finer points, Rabotai, to a people that had spent their time morning till night making bricks. Not in education, not in Talmud Torah, not in anything. We'll read in just a couple of parashiyot about how the Jewish people created the temple. And Ramban asks, Menin the when? How did these people who all day long made bricks, how did they get these refined fingers that suddenly could create beautiful artifacts made out of gold and silver with precious stones? That requires a different set of skills with your hands, a much more refined set of skills. And if that was true about the rough versus fine skills in their hands, what about the rough versus fine skills in their hearts, in their heads? You place it in the public eye. You know, you mention it at the Sefer Torah. At the Sefer Torah, you say, you want to give 101 to the Siddhaqah fund. Now the next guy here is a Siddhaqah fund. Instead of telling him he has to give Siddhaqah, when he says 101 to the synagogue and 101 to the... Remembers it, the Siddhaqah fund. That's Tassim. That's Tassim, placing. Placing means when you stand up in front of uh, your children or in front of a group of people, uh, a group of students, and you don't tell them they have to do this, but you say, you know... I read about this program that they're doing in another country, in another city, where this is how they're taking care of the poor people. They're running a, a supermarket for people where people don't need to know that they don't have any money. They use a credit card. It looks just like everybody else. What a beautiful way of giving tzedakah. You just place the idea. And then you wait. And you let it take root. And with patience. And with time. Beautiful changes happen. Not because they were mandated but because they were introduced inside of our hearts and of our minds, there is an altruistic soul that wants to do the right thing. And even though it may be dulled by time and by uh, physicality and by consumerism, sometimes the right idea placed in the right way, it germinates and it makes the most beautiful uh, uh, product emerge. And that happens because it wasn't forced or rammed down the person's throat. Rabotai, in our homes, with our children, with our wives, with the peace that we seek, with uh, moving forward in acrimonious uh, divorce or splitting up in a business or anything that happens where you need this rectification where people are entrenched. That's the point. When they're entrenched in their position and you're trying to pull the guy out physically, it's not going to work. But if you leave breadcrumbs leading from here to here and as 
comes around, eats the breadcrumb, eats the breadcrumb slowly but truly, they wind up getting to the destination that perhaps once upon a time seemed unimaginable. But step by step by step of their own volition, they get there and they get there without resentment. How can we adopt the breadcrumb theory into our lives? May Hashem bless our best efforts with success. Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen ve'amen.